welcome and happy new year. It's officially 2022 and we're going to kick the year off with the hottest topic in the business world, the great resignation. Whether you're a business leader or an employee, this is a fascinating subject and highly complex like so many of the challenges we're facing during this pandemic era. COVID, of course, hit the world like an earthquake, sending a ripple through our social, political, economic, environmental, and even psychological systems. I'm sure that we'll be analyzing all of the ways COVID has changed things for decades. But how do we manage the critical challenges we're facing now? That's the big question. The Great Resignation is just one of the phenomena many people, especially organizational leaders, are concerned with. In the spring of 2021, Economists noted record high numbers of workers quitting their jobs. In August alone, 4.3 million Americans, which is 2.9% of the workforce, quit. Around that time, we started hearing more and more statistics about employee sentiment. Things like, over half of U.S. workers plan to look for a new job in the coming year. As we moved into summer, these numbers just kept getting higher. A Washington Post headline in September read, why America has 8.4 million unemployed when there are 10 million job openings. And now, it's January of 2022, and we're waking up to headlines like, a record 4.5 million workers quit or change jobs in November. Of course, everyone wants to know, why? Why is this happening? And why don't we know by now when it's been nearly a year since we started noticing the trend? Most of the articles you can read and podcasts you can listen to have tried to analyze what exactly is contributing and what's to blame. First, people thought it was industry-specific, happening in hospitality, entertainment, and other face-to-face jobs. Then it was the stimulus checks and generous unemployment benefits. Then it was family-related pressures with childcare and school challenges demanding more from parents. Then it was office policies— people reacting to demands that they return to their workplace or comply with masking and vaccination requirements. But maybe it's more existential than that. Workers are just realizing what they really want, what they're willing to put up with, and they're more confident than ever that they can do better. Maybe it's generational. Millennials clearly quit more than older generations, or so some believe. And the list of explanations goes on and on and on. And on our podcast, we're not going to be analyzing the why. You can find plenty of that elsewhere. We will put a few of the articles in the podcasts we've found valuable in the show notes, so definitely go and check that out if you're curious about what experts and analysts are saying. But what we're most interested in is how do leaders make decisions in the midst of so much pressure and uncertainty? We have a principle we think is helpful across challenges of all kinds and scales, which is separating facts from explanations. This is particularly valuable when it's hard to find anything factual to anchor to and we're swimming in a sea of explanations. That's the case for most leaders as they face, right now, this quote-unquote war for talent. So in today's episode, Robin and Mickey join me in talking about why this distinction is so important and how it can be applied to this specific challenge to open up new possibilities for action. Hello, hello. Welcome once again to On Connection. And today I am again joined by Robin and Mickey, and we are again in person, which is so exciting. Um, Thank you to Industrious in Boulder, Colorado, who's hosting us today. We're getting to check out their digs and um, get to have a nice conversation together today. So hello. 
Hello. Hello yourself. It's nice to be here. It's nice yeah. to be and get to actually put eyeballs on 3D human beings. 3D humans. <laughs> 3D humans. Um, so it is November of 2021. And there is a lot of conversation going on right now about this topic of the Great Resignation. There are some other names for it floating around that I'm sure we'll get to in this podcast. But we think it's a great opportunity to demonstrate a distinction that we often make with our clients and that we think is really in- important to how leaders see how they frame different challenges that they're facing, how they communicate to the people that they lead, and how they make decisions about how to tackle them. And that's this distinction between facts and explanations and being able to see them both for what they really are and then examine how you lead from there. Um, Anything else either of you want to say about how we talk about facts and explanations? Well, I think for me, in any set of circumstances, there's going to be a set of facts. And because human beings are explanatory, we are going to very quickly take that set of facts and have a story or an explanation that's behind them. And how I explain a set of facts is then going to govern how I think about a situation, what I see as potential actions in a situation, what I see as possible coming out of it. And so if I want to shift what's possible, I have to see, is there another explanation for that set of facts that perhaps gives new possibilities? And too often we lock in on one explanation and we as leaders move in in the direction of that explanation and we don't actually consider that maybe there's another way to look at the challenge in front of us and see different possibilities, different things to do. And inside of the great resignation, I think there's a lot of that happening right now around there's one, I'm not sure we have all the facts quite yet. And I think the way leaders explain or blame (laughs) what's happening on anything ranging from the government to society to generations and their work ethic is going to govern what they see as possible inside of that. As those of you who know us will not be surprised by, we say there's a conversational test for what's a fact. And the conversational test is, is it mutually observable and agreeable? Those are the facts that actually help people come together. Uh, We care so much about communication, and its Latin etymology, communicare, simply means in common or to share. So people often want to throw out a fact, and then if other people don't recognize its validity, then they're disappointed. Well, I gave them a fact. The amount of people that say they have facts that are not mutually observable and mutually agreeable, and we don't realize... Find the ones that give us a place to stand to start a conversation, not have the alternative fact war. Mm, mm -hmm. You look at all the articles that we've been reading about the great resignation. One says 98% of employees are thinking of leaving their jobs. Another says 68% of employees are leaving their jobs. And another says 74% of the employees are thinking of leaving their jobs. And I'm going, I could tell God's not whispering in these people's ears because they're not having the same story. So... (laughs) What we care about regarding this is not the question of which facts are right. Mm -hmm. The question is, 
what is the relationship between facts and the way we explain them that help or hurt us? And it's a completely different way to think because people want to just get in the argument about, do I agree with your fact? That the question is, what is it that we're longing for, we aspire to, we're committed to, we care about? And how do we understand and explain the facts that either helps or hurt our ability to get that? Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just to simplify this distinction even further, I think a great metaphor that you use is about like a homicide detective. If they're assigned to a case and they've made up an assumption about who they think is the primary suspect, then and they're filling in that decision with quote unquote facts around that destination, um, they've limited their focus, like you were saying, Robin. And so where are we limiting our focus as leaders? Um, well, I also want to ask both of you, you spend so many t- so much time with leaders in these various organizations, various industries across the world. What are you hearing is so important to leaders right now in this? And what do you think is making it such a huge topic of concern? Well, I think the way we work has changed dramatically, very rapidly in the last 18 months. And people are uncertain about how they keep their arms around their talent in ways where before they could put eyeballs on people a lot easier. And so I think some, what I hear from clients is the surprise of it, I think is also one of the challenges. When they could see people, they had a better sense of like, oh, I think some of the, I think I have a sense of where things are going. I think some of this is this caught, like feeling of being caught off guard, particularly because for the first maybe year of the pandemic, you had a lot of people that if they had a job, they were so grateful because so many people had lost jobs during that that I think there were a lot of folks that thought like, oh, well, we're good because we're taking care of folks during this year. Like everybody's going to be grateful for that. And now they're caught a little short. And and I actually think that maybe it's because there's not as much data that they don't actually have good explanations right now is what's causing people to feel unsettled and because they don't actually know what the right actions are to take. Well, there's been so much stress and any professional environment I can think of over the last two years. And when people suddenly find that someone they respect or they've been counting on or they feel like they need is at risk or is gone, (laughs) in the midst of that stress, the, the disappointment is just huge. My goodness, we're managing a pandemic and now... So I think it's understandable why it's become such a hot topic. One of the things that I've been looking at about this, though, is that it's dangerous for us to look at it in a narrow sense of how has the pandemic affected employee loyalty, for instance. I think there's something that's been emerging from before the pandemic that's being impacted, of course, by the pandemic and is going to keep emerging as we go on, which is a reset of what large companies need to take care of in order to be considered valuable. So one thing I think that's interesting, it's been a couple years now, that the SEC actually put in place for the first time that in your annual guidance as a publicly held company, you have to show your human capital plan. 
that never used to be in the conversation. Because for all those years, the primary stakeholder of a corporation is ownership. You know, so return to stockholders is number one. And what we've seen is if you don't deal with equal respect with the needs of employees, of owners, and of customers, that system will get unstable over time. So I think what's happened is we swung so far away from treating the employees like an equally important constituent in a system that we're now swinging back toward that. And we're swinging back toward it with a lot of years of disappointment and resentment and cynicism. And COVID now adds this whole turbulent catalyst to that conversation. I just think it's a mistake to act like this is only a COVID-related issue. Yeah. Well, since we're meant to represent three different generations, um, what do you think are maybe some explanations that we would readily come to this challenge with that might be colored by our generational perspective? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to answer that with what immediately, immediately came, came to, to mind, mind. <laughs> which is embarrassing. I, I, if I think from myself at 71 and baby boomer and having grown up in this, uh, my first reaction is, People should be grateful they got a damn job. <laughs> and it embarrasses me because I've learned to rise above that irrationally and deeply rooted bias. Uh, I think part of that comes from this feeling about job as evidence of worth that is a part of the era I grew up in. And I, I see that differently in different generations now. So it'll be interesting to see what you see. But if you got a job, then that's worth something and you should be happy. I'm, as I said, embarrassed to say it, but that's really what's there when you ask what's true for me generationally. I just hope I've learned my way past that as a steady state. Mm -hmm. I think for me where I go really quick is something around loyalty. Cause I think as a Gen X, I was in the generation where my parents had worked for companies for really long periods of time. They'd had a lot of loyalty to their organizations, to their employers, their employers had had arguably loyalty to them. My Dad might have a different opinion on his last uh, employer. Um, and for my generation, that loyalty started to break down. So there were lots of layoffs and organizational layoffs were a co very commonplace through all of my corporate um, experiences. And so it was, well, like organizations aren't going to be loyal to people, why would people be loyal to them? So I go, I think, I think something around loyalty is really quickly my explanation. But I'll also say that I have a personal value around loyalty. So that's, that may be also why I go there. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to say if that's generational or just like something for me around my personal values. Right. Mm -hmm. What about for you? Um, well, the first thing 
that comes to mind, I mean, I think there's a lot of explanations about my generation and their behavior and their relationship to work um, that were like lazy or not loyal or noncommittal or blah, 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 blah. Um, I think what I observe in my generation um, is a constant searching, like a constant searching for the best, the better, the next, and a searching for security and a, a belief that we can only depend on ourselves to provide that security. We cannot depend on an entity or a group of other people to provide that to us. Um, so that's the first place I go just from what I, I think I observe. Um, as an individual though, and the reason I'm distinguishing these is because I don't know that my personal view is like you're saying the generational representation. Um, but I do think it's, it's less a search for security technically, but it's actually like a search for belonging, um, and a search for feeling satisfied with wherever we are and that that comes from relationship and purpose and, um, but I don't know that that's necessarily dependent on your employer as much as maybe some people my age are putting that weight on them. But anyway, that's, yeah, the first thing that comes to mind. And what's interesting to me is if we sort of play with each of our three explanations just as a starting point. Mm -hmm. So as a leader, if a leader had these three different explanations in front of them, it's a really good example of different actions you would take that might or might not resolve it, right? So if you explain it the way I did, that it's about loyalty, then the way to retain people would be to have something that looks like pension plans or something something that actually would give people that sense of being committed to them. If you explain it the way you did, uh, MROs, then you actually would have to create different solutions that create sense of belonging and community and f job fulfillment, but that loyalty might or might not be as important, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, you know, for what, go, go back, tell me what, what was yours again? <laughs> <laughs> he made me revisit my embarrassment. My zero to three second reaction was, you ought to be grateful you've got a job. Right. So that it, my explanation is that as long as you're being paid to do something useful, you should be satisfied, which even I say it out loud, it's so irrational. But then, well, and then what's interesting about that, the limitation in that is the problems with you, not me. That's and so right. there's actually not a lot of action for a leader to take from that mentality. It's like, well, you better be grateful. That's right. Uh, that's a really good explanation. That's a really good example, actually. Sorry, Mick, to pick at this one for a minute of an impotent explanation because it actually disempowers the leader. It goes, see, nothing for me to do. You all should just be more grateful for the damn jobs you've got, right? Which sort of takes all the burden off of me. It also gives us no solutions in front of us. Right. Right. And so it's a really, to me, that's a, it's fun to play with, like the different explanations and how they show you a different way to consider a challenge. One of our, our clients a few years ago said that for him, this notion of having different explanations was like the aperture on a camera, right? It sort of opened up the lens to give you a different purview on what could be possible. I think when you're looking at the completely valid concern people have for having the talented people that they need to fulfill whatever their organizational uh, priorities are. I don't know that that's ever not an issue. And I think we're, 
going through this reset right now, and there's lots of different explanations about why. People have had much more time away from the workplace and reflecting about what they're doing and whether it's what they want to do with their life. You know, that's one of the explanations that's come up. The What you said earlier, Robin, that because we haven't been around each other physically as much in many, many industries, that people have missed the signals of discontent that you might naturally take care of in the everyday operation of work if we were around each other. Uh, and then there's competing explanations. You know, we've got a client who we really respect who's operating hospitals in 11 countries during the COVID crisis. These are people going to work every day. They're seeing each other. You know, these are essential workers who've not had this work from home thing. And the stresses they've been under are incredible. So now the projected trends in medicine for people potentially leaving are huge. So to find the explanation that explains the great resignation. You can't do it. I just think is not a worthy (laughs) use of time. Well, then why are we discussing this? I think it's because we all want to look at how do we assure that we have the right community of talent for what we're out to achieve. And that's valid. I've seen just over the last two months, I can think of in four different clients, some version of one of them calls it an employee experience survey. Another one is uh, organizational health. Another is employee engagement. Uh, And a fourth is, they're also just calling the voice of the employee. These are from four completely different industries, headquartered in Asia, in Europe, and in the Americas. So, and yet across all of them, if you look at what's happened since their last survey and what people are complaining about, there's a breakdown in communication. People don't feel like they know what they need to know. And yet, to go back to impotent explanation, when I'm talking to the executives, to the CEOs, these organizations, what's frequently across all of those? Well, that's not true. What's true across three of the four is the senior executive is saying, well, this doesn't make sense to me. We're sharing more information than we've ever shared. Instead of actually getting, wait a minute, hold on. You say, I'm sending out more emails (laughs) than I've ever sent. (laughs) That doesn't equal communication, which is shared Community, communicare, is what's present for you what present f- what's present for them? Is the information you're sharing useful and valuable to them like it is to you? So we're saying that this responsibility of the leader to keep people in communication is still good times or bad, resignation or not, one of the imperatives for leadership. Mm-hmm. And so as we go through here, I think one of the important questions is, what matters no matter what? Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I, I just want to point out, like rewind a little bit, that you you unearthed a purpose that I think is important when we're talking about facts and explanations. What's the purpose that we want the explanation to serve? Um, so the purpose you highlighted was we want to make sure we have enough talent to be successful in our organization and have a sustainable future that we can look forward to. That's pretty valid. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like evil or or trying to take advantage of anybody in that. That's very reasonable. So then what are the explanations that we're examining that might give us opportunity to act towards that purpose? 
Well, and I think the other thing I heard inside of those exam client examples is how fast as leaders we assume we have the answer already. Mm. Right. And it's, it's a, it's a really easy place to go, right. To say, well, I, I am communicating enough. The data from your employees says different. Well, but I am. Right. And as opposed to like, where's the curiosity around, okay, there's some, there's a disconnect somewhere in the system. I don't know where that disconnect is. I wonder what's causing that disconnect. I wonder, is it that I'm not communicating often enough? Is it the data's not right? Right. Mickey, to your point that there's a lot of different ways to explain that. If I just go to, I've said it, that doesn't actually give you very much to do. Years ago, I had an executive who was that I was coaching who was trying to communicate strategy, and the team kept saying, like, we don't get the strategy. And he said, but I've told them 10 times. And I said, well, now you know 10 ways that don't work. Uh-huh, right. <laughs> Those 10 ways have not fulfilled what they would like to understand about the strategy. Right. <laughs> and he said, well... I've actually just said it the same way 10 times. I'm like, okay, so that's not working. Uh-huh. <laughs> now you know one way. One way. Right. Tested right. 10 times. <laughs> Tested times. So not working. I'm hearing a common thread, I think, across our explanations, which is um, something about trust. Mm. And that communication is one of the three ingredients in trust for our model for trust. Would either of you want to talk about – well, maybe do you want to share your story about like the – the trust example that you have about about because we we distinguish between communication, character, and capability. Capability. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I th- I think what you're referring to is if you if we ask people, and in fact, Mickey and I were together one time about four years ago in a room of four hundred ex- executives, right. and from the stage, I asked people. When you don't trust someone, what's your first explanation for it? If it's character, please stand up. And in the room of 400 executives, I don't know, probably 85% of them stood up. And I said, okay, please stay standing. And then if it's uh, capability, how many of you go to capability? And probably the remaining stood up with a few stragglers on communication. And I said, okay, you can all sit back down. And then I said, now I've got a different question for you. When someone doesn't trust you, how many of you explain it as character? Please stand up. And not a single person stood. (laughs) And the whole room burst out laughing. Because what I said is, it's actually not possible, right? That like the whole rest of the world is jerks, except for all of you. (laughs) But it is that we default to it's a character explanation so habitually. And I do wonder if we are having this happen in in our organizations right now, both employees explaining it as the character of their CEO (laughs) or of the CEOs and executives explaining it as the character of their employees. Well, this goes back to this notion of communication as an element in creating trust. I think this is an explanation. It's based on facts that I think could be mutually observable. We have seen 
over the last 25 years, the amount of times we've been hired to deal with a trust breakdown are, let's just say, a lot. And that's really what led to all of the study and analysis that we found the three ingredients of trust are communication, character, and capability. What was surprising to me that now is so obvious in retrospect, I'm surprised, I'm surprised, is that what we found at the root of all of it was failed expectations. So we never had communicated, as in shared, expectations to begin with. And if I see what's happened over this last two years, the conditions in which we lead have changed radically. What work did we do to really explore each other's expectations and how those were evolving? Because I think people leave when what they think they have a right to expect is not being served. So we did not reset what's important to me, what's important to you. Are we going to put some routine in place because life is changing so radically and so quickly, we need to stay up to date about that. So we can see whether or not our expectations can evolve together. In some cases, they may not have. But that we weren't even managing the evolution of our expectations, I say is part of the situation we're in now. And people go long enough with their expectations unfulfilled, obviously they're up for looking anyplace else to see if the grass may be greener. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that in this time that we've been in, there are so many expectations we have of one another that we've not said out loud because we think it's obvious. I think I've said this before about virtual work, that before there were mutually understood expectations about the social norms of, a, of the workplace. For your own workplace, wherever that is, you know what's acceptable in terms of how, what time people tend to come in, what time people tend to leave, what, how long people take lunches, what the attire is going to look like, how you show up at meetings. Like That was all sort of implicitly understood, and people learned it very quickly and assimilated very quickly to it when they walked in. I used to work for a manufacturing company in the joke I always tell is that the way the front door was situated, the employee entrance was situated, the um, employee cafeteria was right there behind glass walls. If you were two minutes past eight o'clock, everyone in the cafeteria proceeded to raise their arm and look at their watch <laughs> to imply that you were late. I then worked for a financial services company where if you got there, if you had got to a meeting at quarter past the, the time that it started, you were early, right? So like, <laughs> but, but all of those were under, were sort of understood norms. norms. Mm -hmm. We threw everybody into virtual world. I think honestly, if you think back, we didn't think we were going to be there that long. We thought it was a two-week thing. Then we thought it was a month thing. Well, a month turned into where we are now. And because of that, Mick, we never revisited those. We never actually went back to, like, what are the norms for how we're going to work? What is the expectation? Emeros, you've told a number of stories about colleagues you know who, like, the expectation isn't that people are on video. I cannot imagine how incredibly difficult the work experience must be for organizations that don't have as a norm in your meetings, most of the time you're on video, right. right? That to not have that visual, we have that as a norm. We tend to try to really set what the expectations and the norms are in our engagements. 
But even for us, I think there are places where we've had to sort of keep playing with that and exploring it because we haven't been explicit about it. And I know very many organizations haven't been explicit about it at all. Mm-hmm. And to me, even delving into that question, are our expectations current and are they shared and are they mutually committed? The only reason to delve into that is if it occurs to you as useful, as helpful, as valuable. And that's really one of the things that matter to us most. Uh, Some of you know that we care a lot about the distinction accuracy and authenticity. Authenticity goes to what Emma Rose said a few minutes ago about what's the genuine purpose in the background that we're comparing our explanations to, to see if it helps or hurts. And accuracy for us is a current comprehension of the facts that are mutually important and the way people explain those facts. Mm -hmm. So you can understand how are they thinking and feeling about that. And it's just as important to be connected to how people explain the facts as it is to the facts. If we do that in a background of purpose, we tend to start to gravitate towards the explanations that help. So we think that one of the most powerful examples of leadership is the power to explain. Mm -hmm. And if it's thoughtless and reactive... Or defensive. Or or defensive. Because our question is, is that explanation helping or hurting? Does it cause connection or disconnection? Is it having people be more interested, less interested? Mm -hmm. So to really delve into what explanations are helping us deal with the challenge of having talented people who want to stay in this community to produce something great together, that's a leader's question, not what's right, what's wrong. Is it 78% or 98%? Well, so there's one thing I want to make sure we get to, too, because... I think it's a loaded way of explaining what's going on right now for leaders. Oh, goody. But the, <laughs> the, 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 labeling it the war for talent, how do we think that impacts not just a leader's decisions? If the explanation is that this is a war, how are we noticing people reacting to that? And what might we think are maybe the consequences of that kind of behavior? For me, one of the other things we often talk about is, are we putting something in terms of what we're for or what we're against? The war for talent really has it be something I'm against, right? And so it has it be, feel like more of a battle. For me personally, for us, I would prefer to be in a position of, what's it going to take to create a place that attracts people, that creates a sense of belonging, that creates a sense of contribution and community. I don't think positioning it as war does any of that. I think it positions it as something I've got to fight for and battle with and compete against, compete against uh, others in the market, but also it all sets it up as a competition with the people I'm trying to attract, uh, which I and might have me make short-term decisions that I think are unsustainable. Mickey, you brought up the example uh, the last time we were together around somebody that threw an amazing amount of money at someone to to attract them. I I don't think that's sustainable for organizations, not that I'm seeing right now anyway. Mm -hmm. I really think that we've got an opportunity now to really rethink 
what is the reciprocal relationship between employer and employee? Even those titles bother me a little bit these days because one sounds subservient to the other. Uh, but I think that's what's going on. What Emrose, you talked about earlier, that it feels more individual now. I'm responsible for myself. There is no entity that's responsible for me. All right, that means this is the time of volition. People are choosing to do things. Mm. How do I create a condition in which people choose us? Mm -hmm. So if you use war, I love, Robin, with what you just said, it pulls up tension and stress and adrenaline and fighting. And uh, it's not against somebody else. It's attracting the people who would be naturally attracted to who we are and what we do. Mm -hmm. And I... One of the things that I have learned over the years is what questions reveal whether or not somebody belongs with us. Mm. And before I spent 25 years researching that question, <laughs> I used to just think that anybody that we talked to, we wanted them to want to work for us. We wanted to win. You know, they're out interviewing with other people. We want them to want to be here. Well, we learned the hard way that sometimes it would have been good if they weren't there. <laughs> <laughs> So how do Present we, company excluded. That's right. <laughs> how do we interview for genuine fit? And I found a couple of questions were really, really productive. And one of them is just ask people, what's one of the most disappointing experiences in your career? And could you just give us some detail, a real story, and not a generality? And how did that affect you? And let people tell that story. And then you ask them, well, tell me one of the most uh, gratifying accomplishments of your career. What's something that you were involved in? And at the end of it, you go, oh, I am really glad we went through that, and that was an accomplishment. Tell that story. In both those stories, people tend to reveal how they operate under stress. Mm. And it'll tell you whether that reaction, because those stories bring up challenge, either one of them. <laughs> One's a one that was unredeemed and the other was redeemed. But they really are about challenge. And when we get to see how does that fit with our values for our enterprise, the way they operate under stress. And it has really helped us. Because what I've seen then, you can take what you learn. Like right now, Jackie is about to go on maternity leave. <laughs> I have to think Jackie is fabulous in her work with us. And I'm going to miss her, and I'm worried about what goes on leave while Jackie's on leave. <laughs> well, one of my recommendations was when we're, we're expanding anyway, we need to bring on more project orchestration support. Somebody ought to go interview Jackie and ask her those two questions. And whatever she says, that becomes your requisition for the job. Because you want people like that. Mm. And then... You're not winning a war. You're attracting the people who belong when you were talking about belonging earlier. Mm -hmm. And I think appreciating our best and brightest and letting this conversations with them help us create the words in which we offer other people work. You just start to get the people who belong here mm -hmm. rather than it's like some strange version of what it was like for me growing up as a young man where any girl I went out with, I wanted to want me. 
that led to some really bad relationships. <laughs> yeah. Instead of how about if I just be fully myself and the ones who resonate with that, hey, maybe we could hang out. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's something about that in attracting people to us. And I don't think you see all that if it's a war. Right. Well, because like a war n- indicates that there's a threat. Mm-hmm. A threat triggers a stress response. <laughs> a stress Within the stress response, there's fight, flee, freeze, or appease, which I'm sure we'll talk about at other times because we talk about that a lot in leadership. Um, but if leaders and an organization, guess what? A whole system can be having a stress <laughs> response. Right. And if a leader, if a leadership team, let's say an executive team, if the board is starting to behave out of their stress response, we like to say that a leader's mood is more contagious than a cold. Um, so you're trickling that through your whole organization. What do you think other people are going to do when they're in a, st- in a stress response? They're searching for security or some way to relieve it in whatever way, at all costs, basically. But then you flip that another way. Um, our colleague Kel, I was talking to him this morning. He said he read a book um, that an old colleague, Emma Smith, um, shared with him. Um, that talked about that during times of, of chaos. Because she probably would not prefer to be preferred to as old. Yes. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean Emma that. Smith, if that you're That was listening. a lack of awareness. Hi, Emma. <laughs> um, but the, um, the book made this point about that during times of stress and upheaval and chaos in the world, we tend to turn towards people that are like beacons of calm I guess Mm -hmm. calm or guidance or purpose and so who who wouldn't the organizations that are willing to choose that path rather than the competitive scarcity mindset let's throw money at people and hope that they stick around thing um which I'm assuming is going to be an ingredient for pretense in an organization too because I'm pretty sure not everybody's going to disclose what those people are making and people are going to figure it out eventually um, but the, the organizations that choose that, I'd like to think maybe it's the optimist in me, but the, I, I think there is an attraction factor, like you're saying, and that they'll maybe come out of this even better than they were before. Well, it, you know, and I know we're going to move to close in a minute. I, mm-hmm. we talk about purpose a lot. I, I do think organizationally, and Mickey, this goes back to something you said a few minutes ago, there's probably not a single explanation for what's causing this right now, right? Like it's probably organizational organization. There probably are some generational differences. There probably are some industry differences because the circumstances are different, so different in all of those. But I think the key is what's the purpose you want your organization to serve? How do you actually attract people to who want to serve that purpose? How do you create a culture that's actually drawing people to that, right? So that's what we've been spending the last year on is really thinking about that for ourselves. But I think that that's ultimately the solution for any leader. Like if you were looking for what's one solution out of this, it's to really think about what's the purpose you've set for the organization? What's the culture you want to have? What would you have to do to create that culture in an expansive way so that people can see it and feel it? Because then you're going to be that natural beacon for the right kind of talent that's going to want to be there to serve that purpose in your organization. 
that's different than just throwing money at it. That's different than just throwing uh, pension plans out at it, right? It really is thinking about what is it culturally you want to create, and then how do you have that be the beacon? And then who you include in that inquiry, you know, what's the culture we want to create, becomes a very powerful issue. Uh, you know, another of our colleagues, Krista, is doing something with a client that we really admire that I love, which is in the face of all of this competition for talent. She's working with them on doing stay interviews instead of exit interviews, <laughs> which is you're going to your best and brightest and bringing them into the question that Robin's asking. Like, what is it that makes this a place that's worth being in? What do you see? And it's giving them a chance to reset these expectations with people. Uh, it's an exploration. I find as a leader, every time there's a question that I don't have the answer to, that I need to have more people in the question with me. Mm. And I love that they're giving the question to the people they value in their system in the quote, stay interviews, <laughs> and discovering something together about what allows us to have the culture that we all want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. And as the CEO, no one ever can answer that from their own perspective for all the people who work in their organization. Mm -hmm. So I just love taking that question, Robin, and bringing into it the people who know and feel the things that I'm unlikely to know and feel, because we'll live our way to a better answer to how do we build a culture that we all are Well, what are the to. explanations they might have that, that might be more valuable? You know, what are the explanations from the people around me? And is there one that's more actionable and purposeful for us to get around than the one I might be sitting with that's making me feel helpless or afraid or um, stressed? <laughs> um, well... I think we could talk about this for a really long time. There's still things circling around in my head, and I'm going, shut up. We got <laughs> to stop. Um, but we'll be back in the future to talk about more things. Any? Um, well, we like to close with what we learned. Did you, I, did you learn anything? <laughs> well, uh, something was reaffirmed for me. I, I actually... I'll be honest, I was dreading this conversation, you guys. I was, I actually, really? yeah, I was not that excited about it. And um, I think it was because of a feeling of like uh, hopelessness about it. And just our, ex our exploration of it today was like, oh, like there's actually hope in here for us. So thank you for that. So it was a reaffirmation around something we always say, like conversations are the work because that's how we actually are smarter and better together. So uh, thank you. Cool. The first thing that comes to mind regarding what did I learn out of this, Emrose, it has to do with what you talked about when you were saying your generation and at least yourself personally, that the sense of belonging was a ruling factor. It was really big. And it just struck me how in my career back when I was your age, it just never was there. Mm. It is there for me now. Mm -hmm. And I often think that who I've become has a whole lot to do with generations younger than me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so just learning that belonging can be a valid ruling factor for somebody staying or not someplace. Mm -hmm. That was really 
That was good. Thank mm. you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I feel like I learned, you know, this is a big, massive topic and nobody has like a clear answer right now about it. And I think there's a lot more fear mongering than there is like hope like mm. you're talking about. Um, and in surfacing this topic, we got the opportunity to talk to a lot of our colleagues and help clarify that we were at dinner last night and had that be a topic of conversation. Um, one of our colleagues, John sent me a podcast he had just listened to about it. I listened to some others, got to talk to Kel this morning, Jackie's perspective, Katie's perspective, and that it's so true that the conversations are what can surface more clarity around something. And it just made me really appreciative. It's not, I guess a learning, but I guess it's a learning that of how much more quickly I can learn enough about something that I'm feeling kind of hopeless or unclear about by just asking questions and being in conversation with more people. So it's not exactly what happened in this room with you guys today, though you're very smart and I definitely am sure learned something. But I think that's the biggest thing. I'm, <laughs> that's the biggest thing I'm taking away is like we can we can talk to other people and gain a lot of insight very quickly. So thank you to our our other colleagues who are not sitting here in this room, but that we bring with us everywhere we go. Everywhere we go. Um, well, thank you so much. And we will talk to you again soon. Bye for now. See y'all later. This episode was produced by Guy Connolly. Original artwork is by Dana Buckingham and music is by a cast of characters. Special thanks to Conversance Extended Community who inspire the continued evolution of our work and stand with us in our commitment to change leadership, business, and the world through conversation. You can learn more about Conversant at www.conversant.com. On Connection is created and produced by the members of Conversant. Awakening the world to the power and joy of authentic human connection, we set a new standard for leadership that produces meaningful, enduring impact. Until next time.